On episode 237, I'm interviewing Z Johnson, VP of Customer Transformation at Zappy. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Z Johnson, VP of Customer Transformation at Zappy. Zappy is a marketplace for consumer insights and research automation. Prior to joining Zappy, Z has been a marketing research manager at Microsoft, a director at Ipsos, an independent consultant, and worked at various market research companies. Additionally, she has a storied long-form blog called MR Explorer and has recently added a podcast which uh, really drives her thought leadership. It is actually one of my go-to podcasts. I love the fact that they're really these like micro episodes. I highly recommend you add it to her list. Z, thanks very much for joining me today. I really want to start the conversation a little bit differently than I normally do. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this point that you've raised, thinking about new technologies that have been entering the marketplace in the last, I'll even call it 10 years, yeah. right? So we know that the online survey, big difference. In fact, I think I saw a statistic recently, something 70% of surveys are now online or have an online component to them, uh, quanti quantitative surveys. I okay. Say. Okay. That even sounds low, but yeah, yeah. I thought so too, actually. But um, you know, we, you know, caddy still exists or phone-based surveys still exist as, as well as there's definitely a place for email intercepts. Although I feel like that's basically completely gone away. Less the uh, Nielsen. There's even still paper, paper surveys. <laughs> there, there are still some paper surveys, M yep. but most companies have digitized even the paper surveys aspects of it now are, you know, there might be a portion that's paper, but it gets scanned, you know, and then yeah. um, processed. Automatically read, yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. So it's almost like the digital process, it starts digitally and then it goes paper and then it goes back digital. But anyway, so what has been one of the more disruptive technologies that, that has entered the space? So I'm going to say, I'm going to caveat this with it's the most disruptive and actually useful and I don't mean to sound totally contrarian, but there is disruptive and then there is disruptive and we've found a way to actually use it for research. And that is the online communities. I think the fact that we now have in the past few years taken more advantage of the fact that people have an online presence, they are comfortable, you know, in forums, talking to each other online talking to complete strangers online. I think being able to leverage that has allowed us to get a lot closer to doing a qualitative research at scale. It also has modified some of how we can serve up some of our quantitative information, right? So now instead of just having to have someone come into a focus group area, focus group building or a conference room to show them a particular idea now you can actually serve that up online. They can have a real-time reaction to it. I saw one company, Greenberg, a couple of years ago, they did this super fascinating thing by combining focus groups with a digital presence. So what they did is they had two sets of people. 
they had what they called their experienced IT professionals. And then they had their uh, younger IT professionals. So uh, more experienced and, and less experienced. And what they did is they had, uh, for example, the first group that they had in the focus room was going to be the more experienced IT professionals. Well, while that focus group was running, they actually had the younger IT pros online watching that focus group. And so it was like you were doing a double focus group where they were reacting in real time. The the younger IT pros were reacting in real time to what they were seeing and hearing from their peers who were more experienced. And then they swapped that. And, and just the fact that using that technology and, and kind of that's an extension of that online community, I think that is just, it's so powerful and it's so amazing. And I think what's so amazing is that it works and it's actually opening ideas and doors for us to get richer content, faster content, and be able to reach more people at one time and at a global scale instead of just these tiny regional scales. So that's what I would say. I, I mean, there's more disruptive stuff out there, but as far as disruptive and something that we have actually been able to take in to our suite of tools and use well, I would have to say that online communities piece. That's so, so interesting. The, the focus group on a focus group is like beautifully meta because yes. I'm thinking about like, the, I'm going to pick on Remesh. I don't know if you've heard of the technology, but I've been, uh, and full disclosure, I've done some consulting for them. They, they fit in this qualitative quantitative space because basically it's qualitative at scale, which is something, you know, we're seeing more and more, whether it's video chat or whatever. And their, their use case, they just have, they don't have the, what, you know, the yellow taxi to Uber is my favorite go-to example because it's so obvious, you know, there's billions of dollars or whatever that are spent in the taxi space or were historically. And for Uber, as they introduced their their product, it was just a transference of those dollars, right? So there was no new right. dollar that was being created. And it was the same deliverable ex, uh, experience or outcome for the consumer. Whereas, yeah. you know, most market research technology companies are delivering a different um, or augmented solution. And, and that's, I think, one of the, as opposed to a transference of, okay, I don't have to do a survey, I can do this, right? I don't have to do a yes. telephone survey, I can do an online survey. It's the same outcome. Yes. There, it's all it's all augmented onto the budget. It's like bolt on to the budget. So, um, yes. you know, this is an interesting concept because what you're describing is, you know, a real clear use case inside of an existing focus group, which right. is not going to be displaced, right? At least not anytime, right. anytime soon. You're not going to, most people aren't going to say, oh, I'm not going to do the focus group. The reason they want the focus group is the biorhythms or comfortability or what have you, right? Right, right. But what this layers on top of it, you know, in a chat context or in whatever platform you decided to use, it enables the this mixed modal experience where you could have a productive conversation and really understand the impact of what you're hearing, you know, the lens that you're hearing, the bad metaphor, but viewing the you know, focus group and then, you know, interacting with the peer groups and ultimately the stakeholders inside of the company. Yes. Yeah. And the output has been so incredibly powerful. I mean, Greenberg did this as a way of exploring the difference between the millennial IT pro and uh, the non-millennial IT pro. And I will tell you that the information that they walked away with, you know, 
you have heard about, oh, they're more likely to use Amazon and some of those general things. But the fact that they were able to get that as a on-the-spot reaction to them listening to their peers and actually show how different their worlds are and the way that they approach things, it actually created this link between the two because you could see kind of this, oh, so that's where I'm going to end up, you know, as they're watching their, their more experienced peers. And just this whole like, well, we're here because we want to be solving problems and we want to break stuff and, and fix it and just be there to, to be involved with all this new technology. Whereas their experience, more experienced peers, they're like, yeah, seen it, done it. We're just trying to keep the lights on. But the story that came out of that, I think because of the fact that you were able to get such a quick gut response from both groups to how the other group was responding to the same questions, I think landed that message so much better, so incredibly beautifully well. And it, it provided so much more weight to a lot of the information that had already been circulating. Um, but there's something about that, that qualitative, hearing it from a person, seeing a reaction in real time that just ends up landing so much better. What is your view on traditional focus groups, you know, recruit nine to 12 people for a session in person versus online equivalent? You know, I honestly, I think that the in-person focus group, part of the problem with that, that I have seen in the past, and I should say most of my past is B2B market research. Um, so I, I can't speak to this experience with B2C, but I would imagine it, it might hold true, is you get a lot of the same people who are participating in these same regions. You know, it's if you're going to do an in-person focus group and you're going to be tech, you're going to go to the Silicon Valley, you're going to go to Chicago, you're going to go to New York, and those are going to be your three places because they each have their own quirks about them that capture pieces that you want to have. That is so limiting, I think, in terms of being able to capture a broader swath of an audience, whether it's B2B or B2C, I don't care which one of those it is. You're not capturing a true audience if you're just keeping it centrally local to that nine to 12 people that you can find within that particular area. Transfer that to the online experience as long as someone is available during the time that you're having your thing and they have met the criteria, it doesn't matter where they are from. And I think that is super important because there is that cultural element that ends up being almost overweighted, I think, when you're doing this in an, an in-person environment. Um, and it's overweighted, but it's also you're trying to mitigate by having it in these central locations, whereas online, it's already mitigated. You don't have to worry about making sure that, well, Silicon Valley is going to be the super tech forward. Chicago is going to be probably more the mainstream. You can have those same people in the same, quote, room when you're doing it online. And you're still going to have the issues of, is someone going to be dominating the conversation? Do you have a good moderator? Do you have good questions? But I think the representation that you can get using an online community is just, it's richer, it's deeper, it's broader, 
it's more what I think we try to achieve in those in-person focus groups. So are you seeing online communities really in a, in a, through a longitudinal lens or are you seeing it as you know the short-term kind of one and done? No, I think I'm seeing it more through the longitudinal lens. Okay. And then, so it's about recruiting a sample frame or you know a group of people that look a certain way, whether it's buying habits or demographics or what have you, and then just touching them on a regular basis. Yeah. Got it. Got it. But also, is that asynchronous or synchronous feedback or some combination? I think a combination of the synchronous and asynchronous feedback. I think that is part of the beauty of having the online community, right, is that you can have both types of feedback uh, in this same group. Who do you think is doing a particularly good job from a technology empowerment level in the online community space? You know, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I want to say focus vision is the one that comes closest to mind. And you can cheer for me. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the work that I have done with online communities has been done um, through agencies that are then reaching out to other agencies to try to get that work done. So I really am not sure who is really forging the path for that. So the way that you see it, that it's, you know, and this is consistent, incidentally, with other market research professionals in brands that I interact with, the way you really contracting with an agency that is dealing with the technology implementation, et cetera, et cetera, um, as opposed to that being an internal function inside of, in this case, Microsoft. Yep. We rely heavily on the agency partnerships that we have. You know, we go to them, we tell them what is it that we would like to have done. And we rely heavily on them to come back with, okay, here's how we can achieve that. Here's some thought leadership on our part. Uh, you want this, but we think it could be even better if you tried this new technology. Here are some use cases where we've already used it. Would you be interested in trying it out now? And we we really rely on them to have those relationships with the technology providers to be able to present those experiences. An example is Vox Pop Me. They had a lot of relationships with agencies and I had seen them, but we it's almost like we don't use them we didn't use them at least directly. We use them as kind of that bolt-on feature to a survey. And then eventually over time, it their surfaced an ability to actually deal directly with them. But that's, I think, generally speaking, the majority of how we end up interacting with technology companies. It's as like three steps removed from where we are sitting doing our research. Shifting gears a little bit, you have... I think since September, at least what I've found, September of 2015, uh, hosted a long-form blog on mrexplorer.com. Yep. Some of your your early stuff I found really interesting. The one that I actually tethered myself to was a webinar recap. The subject doesn't matter. The fact that it was a webinar recap, I found it really interesting in that in that same month because. Yeah. Recently, this year, 2018, you pivoted to a podcast. Yep. I'd like to really understand why you started the blog first, and then I want to talk about, explore why you started the podcast. (laughs) You and me both. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, in all honesty, I started the blog 
after I left Question Pro. Um, I was working for a market research um, agency doing project management. And one of the things that I had done at Question Pro was blog on behalf of Question Pro. And that meant that I had a lot of opportunity to explore, to write, and I love writing. I've always loved writing. Uh, and when I when I switched roles and I no longer had that daily outlet of or even daily deadline of having a blog post that I needed to write about some topic on market research, I found that I really missed that. And I felt so disengaged from the rest of the market research community. And so I actually started the blog more as a personal outlet for me to be able to explore ideas, topics that were taking place in the market research industry. I was really making a point of following a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of the thought leaders, Annie Pettit and Jeffrey Henning and Ray Pointer were the earliest ones that I, I started to follow. And they were saying some really, really interesting things that were making me step back and think. And I wanted to just kind of pitch my voice in, if you will. But more, it was a, a personal outlet for me to keep exercising that exploration part of my brain and learning. Because it's something I've always loved to do is just learn, learn what's new and see how it integrates with what I have right now. This last year, I actually started the podcast in part because I was inspired by your podcast and Seema Vasa's podcast because it was something that has been on my mind for a few years. I've been a podcaster or not podcaster. I've been listening to podcasts for gosh, three years, four years. And ever since I started listening to podcasts like This American Life or any of the NPR podcasts, really, I was thinking, gosh, this sounds so fun. This would be such a great way for me to actually take the same thing that I'm doing in my blog and uh, put it in a, an audio format. And I naively thought that it was going to be a lot easier to do a podcast than a blog post. Um, I thought, oh, I can just have my phone. I can just turn on a recording and then bada bing, bada boom, it's published, it's done. Uh, little did I know that it talking into a microphone, it's so different, especially when it's just you and you're trying to self-edit while you're talking. Uh, because I, you know, I just didn't realize that when you're typing out something, you read it, you can immediately go back and it's not audio. So you're not having to be like, eh, but, no, okay, let me try that again. <laughs> I remember the first time that I, that my very first podcast episode, I ended up doing that waiting for my family to come home from visiting family in Eastern Washington. <laughs> I was just sitting there at the window, kind of like, you know, in Cat in the Hat, where they have the kids sitting in the chairs, looking outside, wishing that they could play, totally. but it's raining, totally. so they can't. I totally felt like that was me sitting out the, <laughs> the front window, just waiting for the car to drive up. And it wasn't driving up and it wasn't driving up. And I'm like, you know, this would be a good time while well, I'm doing absolutely nothing to just record a podcast. <laughs> so I just, there was stuff going through my mind. I decided to download an app and just start recording and see what happened. So I got to play this for you. Sorry about the pause. I wanted to find it. Test, 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 test. <laughs> 
Right. I mean, that's, that's the very, that's the beginning of your first episode. My, it actually is an iconic, for me, it's an iconic go-to moment in podcasting. You're capturing a lot of stuff with that. The point about the self moderating and editing, you know, podcasting happens, even though it is a, there's a post-processing element, it happens in real time. And like you, I love long form blogging. And when I made the transition to I'm literally like terrified. I won't even listen to the first 10 episodes that I produced uh, <laughs> because it's, they're just so bad. Right. Um, right. At least from my, at least from my lens, but, right, but right. And, we, and we have to have that, that, that honesty with ourselves too, is that all of our stuff and including our voices aren't terrible, right. but, uh, and, and, you know, the degree of, I'm going to say we're probably self-critical and our biggest critics, but the way that the market views us is very different than that internal voice. And one of the things you talk about, and I think it was in um, the second episode, uh, you actually use the word self-doubt uh, as one of the reasons that it, it was in a delayed in getting published. And that just struck me so right, right in the middle of my ego, which is exactly the problem that moving from a long, a blog or written form to a, or, you know, to a real time form that impacts, how did you conquer this self doubt? Oh, I still haven't. Uh, honestly, that's one of the reasons that it has taken me a while to uh, record a fourth episode is Gosh, we have this book that my son, we bought for my son. I bought for my son. And by for my son, I meant for myself. Um, it was called The What If Monster. And it's this little book. And it's this, it's basically talking about this little boy who wants to go do all these things. But the what if monster comes to pay a visit and says, well, what if you fail? What if you don't like it? What if no one likes what you do? And I just feel like that is such a constant voice that that goes on in my head of what if you record something that is just stupid? What if you record something that no one wants to listen to? No one agrees with, no one cares. And then I have to go back to, but this really, it, it has pivoted for me from the days, my early days of blogging of this is just for me to have a voice. It changed dramatically for me when I realized people were reading what I was writing. Um, because then I felt obligated to create content that people would want to read and for a podcast that people want to hear. And so I found myself doing this thing and I, I had this idea for the podcast that I was going to go back to basics. Right. And that's, I think I, I say that in the first episode and then I go on the like, next two episodes. But the thing that excites me about market research isn't necessarily going back to basics and teaching basics. It's exploring all the new ideas. I mean, that's why I came up with a name for the blog, MR Explorer, because that's just, it's so core to who I am. But that self-doubt, man, it is, it totally is that what if monster. It's the, but what if you say something wrong? What if you put something out there that uh, gets shot down because it turns out you didn't know what the hell you were talking about, really. Um, so I, I still wrestle with that uh, on a regular basis. And I just have to remind myself, you know what? All of us are in that space. All of us are trying to explore this together. 
none of us have all the answers. It's okay to trip every once in a while. And for, for crying out loud, it's a podcast. You can edit the hell out of that thing and it can sound amazing when you're done. And no one knows the bet. No one knows that you tripped 500 times over the name of your own damn blog called MR Explorer. You know, no one has to know that you did that because you can just edit all of that bad stuff out and you sound like the most genius person in the world. But then I, I still have that self-doubt. Like, yeah, do I really sound like a genius or did I just sound like totally. someone rambling? <laughs> I've actually struggled with the editing portion of it. Not because I hate listening to myself. I definitely do. But the, the, the bigger reason why is I feel like there's a disingenuousness. Dis, it's almost like the the way that the podcast is consumed, It's it's in my opinion, it's intimate. It's very unique. It's it's a lot like the written word, except for the fact that the written, right. written word happens in this like dedicated period of time where you're extremely focused. In other words, there's not a lot of other stuff going on around you. Uh, the, the podcast is consumed oftentimes in a passive way. So you're almost always doing something else, commonly commuting, for example. Yeah. And when you're doing these drudgery type tasks, like for me, I was doing some yard work this weekend when I got, I re-listened to your episodes. And when you're doing these drudgery-ish tasks, there's this this relationship that develops uh, with the host that is very, very unique because I don't, I don't know the psychology about it. I'm not trying to pretend to, but I'm just interpreting my own sort of connections. And it's like, I feel like I know you, even though you and I have never met in person. And this is the first right. time we've ever spoken, right? Right. So, right. So there's this like, there's this connection and it's way different than me reading your blog posts. Yes. Right. It's, it's totally, yes. it's totally different. And honestly, it's more, in my opinion, anyway, it's way more human, maybe yes. one-sided because you don't have, <laughs> it's not reciprocated, but anyway, so was that part of the reason why you decided to venture into podcasts? Was this alternate way of connecting to the audience? Totally. It, it was, uh, so one of my favorite podcasters, I guess is what you call them, uh, is Sarah Koenig, right? The one who uh, is the voice for the serial podcast. And it just, you listen to her and you feel like you are sitting in her living room and she's just telling you about this stuff that she just happened to learn the other day. And just that intimacy behind it it became so it became so human like you said and there was a part of me that wanted to actually put a voice to my voice uh, uh, as weird as that might sound you know i i had the typing and i had the blogging and and that was that was fantastic and i i'll still go back to that every once in a while um but similar to how I'm going to go meta here, but similar to how in market research, you have qualitative information and you want to support it with quantitative. Uh, oftentimes it goes the other way, though, that you have quantitative information and you want to humanize it with that voice of the customer, the actual voice. And there was a part of me that really wanted to put my voice out there uh, and connect better, connect deeper with the people who I feel like are part of my tribe, the this whole market research community. And I think that's that's part of where I got a little 
stuck at first is because one of the things that I was going to do with my blog was actually make it a how-to for small to medium-sized business DIY market research stuff. And so I, I kind of had that mindset when I was starting the podcast, but really it's all about just someone hearing me and my ideation as opposed to someone just reading what I have to write. It, 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 there's just, it, it pivots in such a, such a unique way, I think. And I, and I think that ends up, you know, it's like walking into a party and hoping that you're interesting enough to meet a few people. <laughs> That's kind of the podcast world, right? Is you're like, all right, I'm sending my voice out into the wild yonder and I'm hoping that someone finds it interesting enough to listen. Yeah, it's all about this value exchange, right? And, and, and you definitely get that with long form and it happens completely differently, but also I think impactfully in the, in the podcast. You know, webinars are, and this is why I picked up on your webinar piece, webinars this, had played this, a similar role in um, thought leadership where, you know, you'll have this live event you'll present a case study with a you know an agency and a brand will usually present a case study or just the agency on behalf of the brand and then you know people will chime in with live questions facebook live there's a lot of different platforms periscope that have now enable similar sort of interactions um maybe not to the degree of like a webex but or go to meeting or what have you but do you think that podcasts are going to assume a similar type role the difference i see is webinars are not very frequently re-listened to whereas podcasts tend to be this long for or sorry this evergreen piece of content that are you know I, i'm still getting downloads on my very first podcast so i used to do webinars on four question pro and you're right about their their shelf life so to speak because i had a rotating set of four that i would do and it was mainly geared towards people who were new to the platform and the first week would be just an intro to Question Pro. The second week was going to be how to do some of the more advanced stuff, you know. But I had to repeat that every month. So every four weeks, it was like there was a reset, right? And it was always, if you're just joining us for the first time and it's week three, you're going to want to join us in week one. But you're right, podcast is totally different. It's like I can put it out there and who knows, in three years time, someone is going to be discovering this and listening to the very first episode. It becomes more fluid, I think, in the the content and the delivery. We did a, um, a, a podcast for specifically for SurveyMonkey prior to them file, uh, going public. And then it launched shortly afterwards. Watching the downloads on that were, for me, was has been very interesting because you actually see, you know, even though it was a one and done investment, it wasn't very expensive, comparable to yeah. a webinar. The yep. There are people today that are going to download the download the episode. This incidentally, yep. that episode's not on the Happy MR uh, podcast. Uh, but in that framework, I found it really enlightening in terms of the power and uniqueness podcast versus a webinar. My, I think one of the one of the things that we will see in the next two years are on-site podcasts at events, in market uh, yep. research events, right? Yep. Where you're seeing sort of a post 
interview with the keynote speaker, maybe select other speakers, and then that get wrapped into a, we'll call it a season. And then the democratization of access to information that happens at the brand level is really powerful because right now it's, you know, somebody higher up, they get to go to TMRE or whatever, and then they right. come back and they maybe write a PowerPoint or something. But in this right. case, it would actually give access to all that information to the larger, you know, the, 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 the group of researchers. Yeah. You know what I would love to see is the SMR. They had the SMR TV. I would love to see that SMR podcast instead. Totally. hundred percent there, by the way. Because, you know, it's like, okay, it's TV, which means I still have to dedicate time and screen space and all that. But podcast, I can listen to that while I'm driving into work. I'm back from work. And you, and it's such rich content. There's so much value yes. there. Yes. You've been long form blogging for just about what, four or five years, or actually more than that since Question Pro. Yeah. Yeah. But at a, at a personal level with MR Explorer, right, for about four to five years. Yeah. You've been developing and maturing your, your personal brand. What role do you see impact of a personal brand on an individual and then subsequently their career? So one of the things that I have seen um, is uh, was something that Annie Pettit actually told me. Um, she and I connected via Twitter. I finally met her last year at IIEX North America. And uh, she actually had had reached out to me um, a few years ago when I started with my Twitter presence and started developing this personal brand of mine and just giving encouragement and saying, telling me that in her experience, uh, her using her voice in the market research community via social media had opened doors for her that she otherwise likely would never have seen open. And I have seen that. I know that the fact that I am so passionate about this space that I am willing to share my voice about it, either via my podcast or via uh, the blog that tells people a lot, right? That just immediately right there says, whoa, she's invested in this. And that has already opened doors for me that I otherwise don't believe I would have seen open. Um, whether it's getting to talk to getting to talk to the likes of Annie Pettit and exchange emails and meet Jeffrey Henning in person and and feel like I had known him for years. It has basically meant that my perspective and my ability to connect has gone global instead of being limited to my little sphere that might exist at Microsoft or wherever I happen to be. I have a much broader set of people that I can draw on, that I can ask advice from, that I can connect with. And that alone has really helped me in my career, because if I need to, I know that I can send a note to a bunch of people and say, hey, can I just get some advice from you on this? I'm really struggling with like a methodology question or even a career question. And that has been incredibly valuable. I mean, it just having that network at, at my disposal is something that I do not take for granted at all, because I know how incredibly precious that is, how much work that has taken. And 
at times some courage to get out there and actually engage with the community and expand beyond my comfy little sphere here that I have going. It has been, I think, far more impactful in ways that I did not even imagine when I started. Yeah, Annie Pettit, uh, Jack Brislak, I think research geek on um, Twitter. Yeah. Big, big influencers, of course. Uh, Ray yeah. as well, big influencers for me. Kristen Luck, of course. Yes. You know, on, on that point, in terms of speaking of, of the influencers of our space, are there other voices that are punching through right now in market research that we should be listening to? I love following Lucy Davison. Her voice, Simon Chadwick, I feel like that is another voice that I I love going to. Someone that I met at IIEX that I have been following, he is working more in the AI space right now, but Patricio Pagani, he is, the stuff that he is bringing forth in terms of just keeping on top, on top of what's happening with AI and uh, digitization of so much stuff globally, and he is kind of taking a look at it uh, as a, now, how does this apply in market research? Um, his stuff, I have been following him more on LinkedIn, and it has been so eye-opening because, at least in market research, I joke that we just finally woke up to the fact that people use cell phones on a regular basis. <laughs> um, but, but, and so AI seems so distant but the stuff that he publishes, that he shares with what he's seeing happen in the world with AI, it makes it so real and so present and so right now. And almost uh, to me gives an urgency behind um, needing to understand it better and figure out how we can include that or learn about it and how to include it in our, in our tool set. Now, one of the kind of pulling back, talking about the importance of value, you know, thinking about the role of podcasts, the competitors set to podcasts are traditional media, right? So yes. it's, it's, it's a high bar and we have to yep. be, and we have to frame it like that because this is, this is interrupting their Spotify playlist. Yes. And so yes. it, you know, that means the value. And I, as much as I like to think I'm a good singer, actually, I don't think I am, but you know, is we've got to bring value because that's the only way we're going to be able to gain and retain an audience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit, and and we'll probably end on this with respect to MR Explorer. How you're, you know, recently, in fact, this month, November 2018, I believe you posted to your blog after a, a while. What do you see as the future going into 2019 from a communication strategy perspective with your personal brand? Is it Twitter? Is it, you know, blogging? Is it going to be more podcasts? What can we look forward to? Definitely more podcasts. I was actually talking with my husband, who is my sound editor, my podcast editor. He's fantastic. And I think I'm going to be doing some mini episodes just when things come up and they're top of mind, uh, I'm probably just going to take some time, pull out my phone, record a few minutes and publish. Um, but also working uh, somewhere on the long form episodes. Um, I don't know to what degree the blog will play a, a part in what I do moving forward. It's still going to be there, but probably more on an 
ad hoc basis, so to speak. Twitter is going to still continue, especially as I go to conferences. That's going to be where I I end up sharing out a lot from what I'm learning and connecting with people and those at those conferences. But yeah, 2019, I, I think is going to be more for in terms of my communication strategy. It's going to be very podcast heavy. And I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. We are excited about consuming it. Jake Prislak or Research Geek on, on Twitter and myself are going to be rolling out a scheduled Twitter chat for MRX. It'll be a... It, no way. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah, we haven't really... I haven't... I, I think it would be helpful for a lot of experienced, you know, stakeholders or influencers in the space to be able to yeah. talk yeah. about specific subjects. And then at the same time, it'll provide other people that maybe are new to the platform or not using the platform to start engaging and adding and adding value, right? That's that's yeah. the idea is that it feels like there's a lot of the same voices, but yes. it'd, be, it'd be great if we could start expanding that, those voices. So, you know, we have a yeah. fuller choir. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Similar to to how Kristen and Annie, they have been working so tirelessly to get new speakers and and get the uh, I especially appreciate the fact that they're trying to get more of the uh, women to step up and and submit proposals to speak at conferences and just join the conversation. Exactly right. It's it, exactly it's been right. Fantastic. Yeah, that diversity is our strength. My guest today has been Z Johnson. Z, thank you very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you. It's been such a delight. And thank you everyone who's been tuning in. As always, your feedback is greatly appreciated. Please take a moment, provide a rating. If you have questions, you can look me up on any of the social media channels, Jamin Brazil. That's at Jamin Brazil. Have a great rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.